Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. In today's episode, Rob and Roman talk about technology, the economy, and politics. Enjoy. All right. Well, welcome, and thank you, Heston, for the introduction. Rob Fay here, and as always, with Roman Sivkin, and uh, we have no guests today. It's just the two of us talking, and it's been a while. I think we're, we've been uh, a bit tardy here in, in getting together to talk. It doesn't mean we haven't been thinking and reading. Uh, sounds like we've been doing a lot of that. Um, yes. So that's good, but we're, <laughs> we're happy to be with you guys. Um, Roman, uh, you're in New York uh, permanently now. Uh, if folks haven't been with us recently, kind of a snowy weekend, Super Bowl weekend. We're chatting here uh, as we record. Um, you know, I, I, I think today we might do something a little bit differently. I know that you've been in a, a really intense period of, of reading, uh, not just literature, but thinking about um, technology, um, our, our political and economic reality, um, you know, and you, you and I have, have chatted, uh, here and there and, and our conversations quickly seem to dive into pretty, pretty deep stuff. And I think we both have a sense that, um, we're, we're living and thinking, you know, in a time of, um, just, you know, mind boggling change. And I think, you know, anyone who's a thinker is trying to really get an anchor point to figure out what's going on. I mean, I, you, you could come at it a, a ton of different ways. You know, we're in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution or how, however we want to characterize that. We're in this, you know, um, web 3.0, you know, uh, uh, tipping point with, you know, will, will there be a, a new um, architecture to the internet that, that goes back to its you know, true grounding of, of um, openness and uh, non-centrality with, with blockchain, right? This distributed ledger that is transparent and blah, blah, blah. I mean, there, there's endless ways for us to talk about it. There's, um, you know, this backdrop of, um, you know, inflation and this uncertainty about, you know, will there be a return to the right, when, when Biden and his administration are up, I mean, blah, 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 blah. Right. You know, I, I, I'd love to hear, you know, what, what's top of mind in that pyramid of that stew of ideas. Um, oh, boy. What's, what, what's got yeah. your brain, you know, going crazy here today? Well, Rob, first of all, it's great to talk to you again. I've been a little bit isolated yeah. here. Um, it's just really nice to, to talk books and just to talk to friends again. I'm hoping that maybe... Um, Heston, our producer, will also jump in here because I kind of want to talk a little bit about um, my recent reading since this is a book podcast and I want to ground it in books. And once in a while, I am not a huge nonfiction fan. I, I do enjoy it in bursts. And this is in the past month or two, it's been kind of this kind of one of those bursts, nonfiction bursts for me. I've only read, I think, like one or two actual novels. Um, so it's a little bit of unusual for me, um, and it brought up so many questions. It really came from a place where I wanted to understand this rapid change that you alluded to, uh, or at least get some sort of a, a toehold on it, because I don't think – the problem is so complex that um, 
in previous times, I just kind of tried to sort of ascend the mountain and try to see where where it led me. I failed. I just like, I don't know. I don't really understand economics. It's not my, I'm not interested in it particularly. Um, I don't really understand technology. Uh, I'm not interested in technology particularly either as far as, you know, just gadgets and stuff like that. I'm not that kind of person. But yet, uh, I've come to realize, as it's just a, obviously a, a kind of a common sense realization nowadays, that it's uh, really affecting me tremendously, even though I'm totally. particularly not interested in it. So it, I'm, we're enmeshed in it. So whichever way totally. we wiggle, uh, you know, we're going to feel all those strings. So to get it back to books, you know, our buddy Art, uh, the guy, you know, our friend who lives in Japan, has been living there for about 10 years now. Uh, I've been... You know, uh, keeping in touch with him. But recently, we really uh, started up a, a really interesting uh, thread of emails. And he's been sending me a bunch of recommendations for books. Uh, and so I started reading George Dyson. Um, he is a science historian who's the, the son of Freeman Dyson, a very famous physicist um, who was a Nobel Prize winner, kind of the one of the smartest people in the world, supposedly people call him that. Um, he died uh, just a few years ago at the, you know, in his 90s. So he had a very long and fruitful life. So this is his son. And the way I found out about George Dyson, be besides reading George Dyson's books about the history of science, is by reading a 1975 bestseller, Rob, <laughs> called The Starship and the Canoe, The Starship and the Canoe by Kenneth Brower. Uh, like I said, it's a mid-70s book, uh, interesting non-fiction book where it presents uh, kind of a father-son relationship between the two Dysons, Freeman and George. Uh, and so in alternating chapters, it has um, uh, information about Freeman Dyson and how he started the Orion, or at least became part of the Orion Project at, um, at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, which was trying to uh, develop starships, and uh, sounds like science fiction, but that's what they were trying to do, to develop some sort of a way of propelling us through space using nuclear explosions um, uh, so that, you know, you blow up an, a bomb and then it pushes you forward, so to speak, in a very crude kind of manner explanation here. And so between those chapters about Freeman Dyson uh, and his attempt to do that, uh, there are chapters about the young George Dyson at the time, only in his early 20s, who rejects that kind of uh, his father's sort of worldview um, and goes west. He, he starts uh, learning how to build kayaks and canoes in sort of the old traditional ways, uh, particularly the, a Russian uh, canoe called a baidarka. Uh, so he, he, he kind of goes back to the land. He literally lives in a tree for a couple of years, uh, 90 feet up in the air, Rob. I saw a picture of this tree. It's insane. <laughs> it's insane. He's got like a, he had a cast iron stove up there. And um, I'm talking like, you know, early 70s. Uh, so it's, it's just really interesting uh, person, this guy, George Dyson. And so he developed, this book is really fascinating. I highly recommend it as a sort of a kind of intellectual history. But then George Dyson grows up. He kind of um, goes back to the Institute for Advanced Studies, at least as a fellow, he never actually finished high school. This guy, you know, the son of a Nobel Prize winning physicist, a high school dropout, um, yet he starts writing this really, these really interesting history of science books. Uh, the first one's called Darwin Among the Machines. And the title kind of should tell you a lot about the content of that book. 
and without really messing up what he really wrote in that book, I just want to quickly just give you, Rob, an idea. Darwin Among the Machines is basically arguing that that uh, our, the, the birth of the digital universe, which really happened in the, only in the mid-20th century, um, is, is, is part of evolution. It's, uh, it's the, the evolutionary principle that sort of describes how we got around to what, where we are right now also applies to machines. Um, and so it's a really fascinating look at, at evolution and what it means for machines to enter the equation. And then he's got another book that was actually relatively recent, I believe. Um, Darwin Among the Machines is like in the 90s or late 90s. And then the recent one is Analogia or Analogia. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Uh, and that's from, I believe, 2020 or something like that or recent, which he explained Bans that that argument of evolution of non, you know, biological based uh, life. I guess you can call it that. Uh, into the idea that it, you know, what's happening to to this universe, this digital universe, when it becomes beyond our programmable control, meaning it starts programming well, itself. Well, that's where I. Yeah, I think it's worth not to interrupt a little bit, but. To- no, no, go. Th- th- throw a few things in there. I think, sure. The the I it feels like that. I feel like I'm changing, right? So I'm fifty years mm. old. So I'm old enough to remember, um, you know, the true before time, which I would say maybe um, you know, the 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 last century, right? In a pre pseudo pre digital world, a pre nine eleven world, right? A, a pre pandemic world. And so um, I feel like I'm undergoing changes within my brain, right? Something's going mm-hmm. on. And, and I'm, you know, both Heston and I are, are tech workers. So we're deeply immersed in this new um, digital way of working as well, right? This is my, mm-hmm. the, the new sort of, um, you know, work from anywhere, so-called remote work, right? So there's this, Mm -hmm. but I think to the larger points that you're making, so, and this is where I'm just thinking off the top of my head, evolution throughout human history has has often been um, from the the environment, right? From from the biological realities. And and the, the, the thing about evolution as it feels like it's happening right now, this digital evolution to our brain, is that um, it isn't happening without our control, right? It's, 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 it's being done in concert with these technologies that we've developed, right? They didn't, they didn't fall from the sky, although there are some people who think that, you know, um, visitors from outer space have been stimulating us intellectually throughout history to, to push us along, perhaps as some kind of aid. Um, but, you know, that, that kind of idea aside, um, you, know, it, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about the Israeli historian um, Harari, who, you know, I think is, has done a, a lot of media appearances recently, and he's very concerned about mm. artificial intelligence and that it is getting to the point where it can know things about us before we know them. And he had a really startling example where he said, um, if, 
I, you know, he said it took a while for him to discover that he was gay, whenever that was, right? That, that sort of self-realization. But he said if he was a young person today, a 13-year-old or something, Instagram would already know that he was gay based on the kinds of inputs that he'd, he'd had on the platform, right? Analyzed against what other gay young men would have put onto the platform. And the platform would have, would have essentially been able to, to tell him through its, you know, quick analysis of all of these previous data points that he was gay. So a company, in this case Facebook, would know something deeply personal about an individual before the individual knew. And, you know, that, that, that for me was a frightening moment. But yeah. again, well, this is something that we can participate in. And the, the part that is so worrying, and then I will, I'll step back, is there are really no organized, society-wide, you know, programmatic discussions about this, right? It's just a discussion like you and I, or, you know, I, I work in a private software company. There are some discussions happening there that are thoughtful. Um, but there isn't a, you know, society-wide kind of like, how do we want this to proceed? And I'll, right. I'll, right. I'll, sort of, I'll sort of stop with that. I think well, the really yeah, scary, no, I, so, yeah. sorry, Roman. Hested, yeah, I, th I, ahead, I think yeah. the really scary thing about it is that um, we haven't been able to predict, even though we are the cause of the change, as you were mentioning earlier, right? Mm -hmm. We have created these software systems and these like social media um, apps, um, they have changed the way that we've, that, you know, we're evolving as a result of these things. And I don't think we predicted how we were going to change. Right. And I guess that isn't, a, you know, the sort of the thing about evolution is you can't predict what's going to happen. So even though we are right. the, the force behind this change, we, we still can't predict and haven't been able to predict how it's going to change us. It's, it's interesting you mentioned prediction, Heston, because I was also listening to David Deutsch um, on some of his uh, talks online. Uh, David Deutsch is uh, another physicist, uh, Oxford physicist, who uh, I guess is considered the father of quantum computing. Uh, super intelligent guy. I mean, you know, really respect, I have a lot of respect for his, for his intelligence. And he was saying that, uh, you know, things like uh, prediction without explanation is prophecy. <laughs> so prophecy, you know, it's 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 a transcendental, it's a metaphysical thing. It's not really a science-based thing. So there's you have to have prediction and then an explanation that makes sense um, in order to have some sort of a, a non-prophecy-like you know uh, look into the future. Um, but even with that, we still don't know what's going to happen. And and to go back to uh, Rob, your point about uh, Yuval Harari. Um, he made an interesting point, I think, in conjunction with Tristan Harris, the, the design ethicist from Google, who used to work at Google, who, you know, quit in frustration when he saw all this chicanery going on um, and, and started the, the, I believe, the Institute for Humane Technology, it's called. Um, he also makes the same point is that, you know, people are so freaked out about AI you know, becoming smarter than humans. And we already have some instances of that, for instance, you know, in chess way back in the 90s. Uh, Deep Blue beat uh, Garrett Kasparov, right? Uh, in the game of Go, supposedly more complex than chess, already AI is better. So AI is already better in a lot of these things that are the top of the human uh, sort of 
intellectual potential. However, that's not even what their, their point is. That's that's not what we should be particularly worried about. It's 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 when AI overcomes our weakest, our, our most weak sort of intellectual defenses, and that's already happening in the form of. You know uh, how how Coca Cola knew about uh, Harari being gay before he did. So there's a yeah. there's a the economic context of this technology uh, is built on on you know exploitation basically. It's built on taking your data and turning it around and using it against you so that you then participate in this weird commodity uh, that you, you become a commodity in a way. You know so. Um, so, the, so even if they just the, the, his point is that if they know you're that that we have to be careful of AI knowing more about us than we know about ourselves, right? Uh, and that's and that's you know the, he he harkens back to the oldest philosophical dictum of you know Socrates: "Know thyself," uh, right. is why it's so important. Because if we don't, we will be then used uh, in this economic context. And also to to think about this economic context because it is so much embedded into a technological worldview. Uh, perhaps we should think about, um, and I think design, you know, tech design people are already talking about this: um, the humans in the loop uh, kind of idea. That if as you build, continue to build more sophisticated AI systems. Um, that we have to keep humans in the loop and to have some sort of understanding so that we we have explanatory power. Like what happened? Um, why is this happening? If we can't explain it, we give it to this AI, uh, then we have a problem because they don't have a fiduciary duty to us in this current economic context. Uh, and by fiduciary duty, I mean, uh, I think Harari uses this example. You, you go to a lawyer, right? And you have a problem, and you give your you know, your lawyer all your information, uh, and and then you don't expect the lawyer to go out and sell that information for profit, right? Or yeah. or to give you away in court and say, "Hey, judge, he told me he was guilty." You know, you, there's a fiduciary duty the lawyer has to you, and so we have to somehow think about technology working for us as opposed to against us as opposed to in the, the exploitation aspect, to protection. So that, for instance, there's already some, uh, you know, some apps that will protect you, you know, limit your, your time online, the way you set it, um, help you uh, avoid distractions. Um, but that's kind of on the app level. What for me is exciting and more exciting than that is to build that fiduciary layer into the actual lower level of technology, into the actual operating system. I mean, I know it's a bit of a, it's a maybe a pipe dream, but it, it's worth talking about because, say, instead of finding your weaknesses and saying, "Oh, Rob, you 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 know you really want to buy this because you've expressed interest in this, you've looked your search online searches were about this." So here's the ad for you to buy this, the thing that you've been, you know, sort of thinking about but couldn't put your finger on it. Here it is. Instead of that, they, the, the AI would say, for instance, say, oh, well, Rob, you just been – somebody just tried to hack you by sending you this link or sending you this image or saying, you know, Rob, uh, let's say you're working uh, and you say, I don't want to be disturbed, you know, for the next 12 hours or whatever. I have an important thing to do. And so when somebody – pings you or somebody sends you a text or a tweet 
instead of your phone showing up, uh, uh, hey, you got something, look at me, you got a message, you know, touch me, do something, your mm. underlying fiduciary sort of duty AI will say, hey, Rob's busy right now, can you, you know, he'll let you know when, when he's available. Um, so something like that, something that works for us as opposed to trying to use us as some sort of a waypoint to, um, you know, uh, increase commerce. Does that make sense? It, it does, you know, and, and I think the, the, the other thing that we often don't talk about is that we, we um, you know, I, I have this image of, you know, I alluded to the fourth industrial revolution, right, that we're, you know, in now, if you want to put it in that framework. And when I think of the first industrial revolution, right, I, I picture these, these northern England towns, you know, Manchester or Leeds, and with all these, you know, smokestacks and these, you know, whatever, uh, Dickensian urchins, you know, lugging coal around in, <laughs> in wheelbarrows, right? So, so, so that was the, the, you know, we're in the midst of that. It's uncontrolled. The air is, you know, a mess, you know, children are exploited. Again, that goes on in the world today, but let's just put it in the context of England. So, so eventually you get, the society gets somewhat more accustomed to like what's happening. Oh, I see. Everyone left the farms. You know, we're in the cities. We 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 need some regulation here. We need some some you know better better hospital infrastructure. We we need uh, better tenement housing for these workers. And you know, there's some successes and failures in that, etc. I I feel like what you're talking about that there will be there will be improvements, adjustments, pushback, as we all understand, right, more of what is happening. And when I think about uh, Twitter, which I would say with pluses and negatives, it's been more of a positive in my life. It's helped me as a writer. It helped me get writing gigs. It's been important for this community, et cetera. But What's really interesting is when I jumped on Twitter initially, whenever that was, I'm just going to say 2014 or something, I really had no understanding of their business model, of how it worked. I just knew that, you know, as a writer, a communicator, I liked this idea that I could rip something off, you know, at the top of my head and then get some responses. And so, so now I understand how it works, right? And I still continue to use it, but I, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm aware of some of the risks of that. And so I think what, what you're alluding to will get better at living in this digital world, but I just feel like we need to, there just needs to be more conversations. Um, you know, there probably will be uh, uh, you know, um, dissidents, and there are, you know, from Silicon Valley who start to help us, you know, understand more of this. Um, and I think the other thing is, if it's really interesting, dude, if you look at the, you know, the, the political leaders in the world, a lot of them are in their 70s and 80s, right? So clearly they have advisors, but these are people who didn't grow up, you know, in a digital world. So, so I think we'll get better at armoring ourselves a little bit. Um, but 
But there is a lot to be concerned about. I, I want to make one point, and then I'll, I'll sort of seed uh, the floor a little bit. I want to connect it a little bit to some of the, you know, the political stuff that we've been seeing. And, you know, you sent me a really nice video with Michael, a conversation with Michael Sandel, Sandel and um, Harari. Yeah. And so um, I actually just went out and got uh, Sandel's most recent book called The Tyranny The Meritocracy Harari. Book. That's uh, yeah. great. Yes. So, so I just ripped through that pretty quickly. Um, I have to say it, it wasn't full of, um, you know, hugely new information. I, I think. Right. But he packages it so well. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And he's so intelligent and, and, um, you know, so interesting, but right. The basic idea of course, is that, you know, the meritocracy has been billed as, you know, a good thing. It's better than a kind of entitled ar- aristocracy, et cetera. But, you know, the part that isn't addressed is that, you know, the, the meritocracy kind of, as, as time goes on, sort of fix the game a bit. So their children, you know, get advantages. And, and so there are winners and losers, right? And, and so how this ties into our conversation with technology is, you know, those who have adapted to this tech world, you know, have benefited, whether it's by working for tech companies or being an investor or having a business that, you know, is powered by e-commerce solutions, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of people, you know, have done really, really well. But the people who haven't done well, right, are the, mm. the people like my dad who were union boilermakers, who were blue-collar people, who, who were raised in a world where if, you know, you join the union and work hard, you know, you can have two cars, a house, and send your kids to college, right? So that's it's no longer possible to just go to high school and, and really, you know, make it. And so the, the point that I'm trying to get to is that one political consequence of this digital revolution, which I don't think is talked about enough, is yes, the, the nativist, uh, you know, xenophobic, political right, insurrectionist revolt that we're seeing. We're seeing it in Canada right now, right, with the whole, you know, bridge uh, disruptions. We've, we, we see it in France. We see it, you know, obviously in the U.S. But I think part of the, the people in that group who aren't, you know, like I said, Nazis, to put it bluntly, I think part of them are revolting, even though they might not be able to articulate it, against this feeling that they're almost being kind of unwittingly tampered with, right? And part of Insulted. the for Right. Yeah, so, and that's a great segue. Sandel really, where his book excels, he talks about the humiliation in, mm-hmm. of being a loser in a meritocracy, right? Because the, the underlying message of a meritocracy is you can do it on your own, and if you succeed, you should feel really proud, because you did it all by yourself. You worked hard. You got the education. You stuck it out. You did X, Y, Z. But the flip side of that is losers are told it's your fault that you're mm-hmm. poor, marginalized, um, you know, don't have health care, right. have poor housing, et cetera. So, so I've started reading that book. I started thinking about, you know, the January 6th insurrectionists. And this isn't to justify anything of what they did, but just to try to understand more of like what's really right, going right. on here is in addition to the xenophobic nativist stuff, I think there's this, this gut level feeling of like, we're in this huge time of disruption. 
And there are people simply revolting against this 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 change. They don't understand mm-hmm. it. They don't want it, right? And there is a reactionary element in this group, naturally, right? So they're more religious. They yearn for traditional values, whatever those might be, according to them. Right, but that um, seems to be a distraction. That seems to be just uh, just one of those higher level well, phenomena that I think is being exploited for but, political but purposes. But it's not. It's not a distraction if if it ends in a you know dissolution of the United States. Yeah. If, it, if it ends in a <laughs> right. civil war, that that's not. No, a but my, my point. It's no, my point is that my point is that um, I'm sorry, but this. Uh, but Michael Sandel has a previous book uh, about market economies, what money can't buy, the moral limits of markets. Right. I mean, he's a moral philosopher, and I really do like his. His sort kind of analysis of of what you were just referring to with this kind of rise in the right and the populist right, um, but he he uh, interestingly uh, kind of affirms <laughs> affirms what I've been kind of feeling but haven't been able to um, really explicitly talk about because I'm a man of little brain and I don't really know a lot of stuff about economics especially. But his point is that. Um, since about you know about forty or so years since this uh, market neoliberalism as as you know to throw a huge stupid term out there, but with this this idea that markets uh, uh, know best you know starting with Reagan and Thatcher, um, uh, basically demoralized a lot of our society. Literally, uh, it literally. Um, extended its reach, the market reach into, you know, supposedly a market is value free, right? You just buy whatever, whatever you yeah. need. There's, there's no values there. Um, but let's say he, he gives a bunch of examples about markets uh, going into areas where they don't belong and basically destroying the norms. Uh, like for instance, incentives or, or gift giving, you know, this whole idea of gifts, free gifts that you, you, this, you know, that's being offered by companies as, as incentive to buy something, a free gift, which is an oxymoron, of course. Um, but the idea is it corrupts the meaning of what it means to give a gift. It, it corrupts the, the purpose of it. It corrupts the, the whole idea of gift giving. And this is just one small example. He, mm. he goes into a lot of other examples of markets going into you know, kidney um, uh, donations, going into blood donations, going into uh, you know, uh, even carbon offsets. Like uh, you know, basically a, a rich country saying, we'll, 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 we'll buy our way into the ability to pollute more. Uh, and so it kind of destroys the... The, the moral underpinning of the idea is that we should all band together to solve a huge problem like climate change. Um, and so it's – I mean I just love the fact that he makes these points because I've been trying to make these points to my – you know, people who are um, completely dominated by this market uh, idea that markets know best and we should just leave them alone, less regulation. Uh, the markets will figure everything out for us. Um, and And again – when you combine that idea of, of unfettered, unfettered economic uh, access to non-economic parts of life uh, and thereby corrupting it or, or somehow um, distorting it, um, it is a major problem with AI and with, potent- with this technology. I was just reading to you the other day. I don't, I don't have that quote in front of me, but something about Apple making – for the past year, making $101 billion of profits, which is more than Walmart, Exxon, 
I forget. It's like a bunch of you know McDonald's, Disney, um, Verizon. Uh, I forget a bunch of other companies combined. So we have we have a giant, several giants. They're all monopolies, by the way. They're very close to being complete monopolies, which is another problem uh, in economic terms. Um, but these guys are, or I shouldn't say guys, but they are mostly guys. But I guess I don't know. I don't want to go there at this point. But these people are um, are really so, dealing with unprecedented, unprecedented economic power. So if we don't right. have this kind of moral way of looking at our lives, and this is something yeah. goes back to Gaddis. You know, you're just talking about losers and winners, and uh, and Gaddis. Uh, I went back to Agape Agape again. Which is uh, the more I go back to that slim volume that he wrote right before he died, the more I realize that everything about Gaddis that I love is there and then some. It's just so concentrated. It's so powerful. Uh, it's got that 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 narrative thrust of a Thomas Bernhardt because he, he literally borrowed Bernhardt's technique for this book. Um, yeah. And so, so he talks about this. It's, it's, uh, and then even his nonfiction book is called The Russians for Second Place, where he basically excoriates America for its treat, treatment of people who don't make it. You know, this, yeah. And again, this, this idea of people not making it being losers and it's their own fault, sure. I think it started with Reagan. It started with that, around that time, at least, not particularly sure. with this person, Reagan, but with that kind of sure. thinking. Yeah, and Sandel would agree. You know, I, I, I do want to, like, throw out an idea um, – I suspect you might disagree with this one, but but I I'm I might argue that you know the the vast profits that Apple has accumulated, right, which are you know uh, just objectively kind of mind blowing and and you know raise a lot of questions. But I I would almost argue that um, it isn't so much that Apple. That that's the problem. That Apple has, you know, all of this revenue. It's more the question is the problem is with the democracy, and the democracies in other countries where Apple has has provenance that that are the problem, right? That that we don't actually have. I I think in a democracy that was truly representative of, you know, a well informed, active citizenry, they they would. You know, they would push back, regulate, um, they would uh, direct resources uh, into different parts of the society, and, and they, you know, wouldn't be, um, you know, as influenced or susceptible, uh, you know, to the, the advocacy and, and money coming from a particular corporation. So, you know, almost to steal... You know something, Roman. I'm I'm sure that you know um, the late uh, David Graeber, the um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the anthropologist, uh, self-proclaimed you know anarchist. You know his his definition, and and I and I know you've often you know uh, talked a bit about anarchism. Is he he's talked about anarchism as you know essentially direct democracy without the government, right? So. Mm you know, a very, you know, democratic approach to making decisions. Um, and, you know, that, that I guess that's, I don't really feel that capitalism in and of itself is truly the enemy, to be quite honest with you. I think if- I you, agree, if, I agree. If you're, if, you're, if you're in India or China, you're, you're going to have a very firm feeling that capitalism 
you know, took you out of just abject poverty within one generation, right? So, so I think the question is, is these companies, you know, do exist within societies and, and how are the communities going to treat, right, these corporations? Um, right. And I think it is possible to have a very robust democracy and, you know, really spectacular multinational corporations. I mean, you know, iPhones and iPads and some of the things that they've brought, you know, are quite, quite amazing. Um, the, well, again, well, the as long as they don't the, work against it's us. The corrupt, it's <laughs> the right. corruption, you know, that, yeah. and, and yeah, Heston? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, it, it sounds like we need the robust democracy bit first. Because <laughs> I think at the moment the the corporations have more power than than the people. For sure, do, you know. For oh. sure, I mean they 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 have profits that are bigger than most countries' G, GDP or whatever. You know, uh, I mean they really are. There's no question about it that they're extraordinarily and, powerful. And that some of those leaders now, I mean Zuckerberg and and the rest, and Cook, they they are beginning to sort of. I mean, they, I think they've kind of were giddy about it in the beginning about this power. Of, of basically having access to billions of people, immediate access, you know. Um, yeah. and in, but in now they're beginning like Europe, to realize that there's, there's problems. Right. <laughs> yeah, and in, in places like Europe, they you do have uh, democracy starting to push back, right? Like exactly. Facebook threatening to, you know, we'll pull out, you know, and the EU being like, okay, bye, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, but it's place, you know, in America, obviously the democracy is just a complete shit show, right? Like it just doesn't work, so... Right. Well, I was just talking, listening to, uh, I told you guys, like David Deutsch, and he has an interesting perspective on, actually, I agree with him completely. He's, he, he says something to the, to the fact that, that even more important than elections in any kind of democratic society is, is the peaceful transfer of power. I mean, we have elections that we kind of think, well, that's probably the best way of doing that. But the idea is to have this peaceful continuity uh, where, where cultural and political institutions don't change as fast as, let's say, you know, the Democrats or Republicans change in office. Because we need that continuity in order for democracy to have any kind of uh, you know, oomph to it. Um, but right now, because of this lack of fiduciary duty of our technology, there is a lot of, um, I think, uh, what are the, I think uh, they're called the enemies of civilization. You know, the anti-enlightenment folks uh, who will try to pull us all in a very different direction, away from that kind of uh, openness and inclusivity, inclusivity, and into some sort of, um, you know, their version of of paradise, which is, you know, for most people, is hell. Um, so I think there's a, again, we're going back to this idea of, of, of AI, which we're talking about AI, but we don't really have AI yet. We don't really yet or ever. I mean, there's, there's a lot of very smart people who will say that, you know, machines can never really think. Um, so we'll always be in the loop. Um, however, machines can certainly overpower us with, with just the amount of data they can crunch. Um, and so we have to be in the loop. We have to have some sort of hand in the technology. Uh, whether it's going to be affecting our democracy in a kind of, I mean, I've, I've always liked the idea of direct democracy where we just, now we have the technology to be able to do it. Uh, whether we can do it safely with maybe blockchain technology or something like that is, is something that I, I'm not, you know, I'm not privy to knowing that. I'm not sure if anybody is, but uh, it certainly is worth exploring the idea that 
we, uh, as a representative democracy, we have failed because there's so much um, corruption going on. Uh, again, the, the corrupting uh, influence of, of the market. I mean, lobbyists can pay homeless people <laughs> to stand in line so they can get into a congressional he hearing. I mean, that's just not a democracy. Um, um, so by eliminating the middleman somehow, uh, I think this this interesting interesting ways of thinking about it. Maybe you can decide what what amount of taxes of your taxes will go to certain projects. You can just go in the online portal and and allocate your taxes uh, with obviously certain guidelines and parameters. Um, and then you can vote for specific issues that maybe affect you locally and then, and then on a national level that have something to do with you. Um, that would definitely require much more participation uh, than, than just going to uh, the voting booth every four years or screaming at somebody online because you disagree with their political you know, right. uh, worldview. Well, and, and, you know, I, I do want to say that, you know, we, we're, we've kind of, we're, we're sort of, I think, rightly talking about, you know, the need for a more robust democracy as a, as a kind of counter to this. You know, the three of us probably would be in agreement of that. But we also have to understand, and I think this is part of the, the, the global discontent and, and struggle that's going on right now as well, that's affecting all of us, is mm. if, if you switch the, the, the lens to China, for example, you, you have a huge population that has pretty clearly seemed to say, like, as long as we have material prosperity, we don't actually care about democracy, right, in China. So there seems to be this agreement between the Communist Party and the citizenry that, like, as long as we, the good times keep rolling here, and again, there are, you know, millions of Chinese that within my lifetime have, you know, been raised from what we might call peasants. And I think in, you know, the parlance of Communist China, they were called peasants, to now, you know, they're like, they're in some fancy cosmopolitan area with their iPhones and they're, you know, they're working, uh, you know, in marketing or whatever they're doing. So, mm. so there isn't, I mean, unless you're maybe in the, the Tibet, Tibet parts of China or Uyghur Muslims or, you know, uh, various, you know, discontents in Hong Kong, there aren't, from what we understand, you know, huge pushbacks. Um, in a well, because they're know, being they're being <laughs> they're being brutally silenced. That's why well, there's there's a we're, well, we're beginning well, with a, with a society that's already kind of um, fetishizes but, conformity, but but still, you know. But I, I go ahead. I, I think it's a stretch to call you know your average middle class China Chinese person being brutally suppressed. I think they have don't have access to the internet. I think that it's clear that if you want to get along in Chinese society. You don't interfere with, with the political realm. You, know, you go to work, you have your family, you, you travel, you go to Paris, you spend money, you come back. You, d you don't contribute to the civic conversation. So I think that that's certainly you know, a lack of political freedom. But I'm not sure you could describe it as you know, brutal suppression, right? With well, I mean, brutal, says. yeah, brutal, brutal, of course, in, but, uh, like you said, you know, but, there, but the, yeah, metaphorically brutal. But the, I guess the point that I'm trying to swing back to is that when it comes to using Facebook or um, typing in something into, into a Google search algorithm, et cetera, or using Twitter, I think most people like 
many middle-class Chinese who are just trying to have their lives and get along just are, are not that concerned with that kind of stuff. And I think it's the same here in the U.S., where there's probably some vague notion that, you know, Facebook helped, you know, inflame, um, you know, the election around Donald Trump and, and Biden and led to the... I mean, there's some awareness of that, even if you're on the left or the right. But I, I still think, you know, humanity <laughs> has this Achilles heel where most people, you know, are, are pretty content to, you know, to grab... Uh, you know, a slab of beef and a beer and, and to just kind of zone out with whatever their, their um, you know, zone out of choices. And so this is always a conversation that involves, you know, a very slim vanguard, you know, of any society. And, and I, yeah. I, that, that always gets <laughs> me kind of bummed out. Again, it's, you know, the Bolsheviks in 19, when would that have been, 1916, this was a very, very small, dedicated uh, group of individuals who, who pushed that through. It was the right timing. Russia was in the middle of a war, et cetera. And, you know, I, I was raised, you know, Catholic. And, and throughout Catholic history, it was always, whether it was a, a, a reactionary push or a progressive push within the Catholic Church, it always happened by a very, very small sort of militant minority, let's say the Jesuits or something like that. So I, I, I guess it's an open question to, to both of you. I mean, it's not going to be the masses that, that push us through to the next level or, or help us navigate this. I mean, who's, who's going to do it? Is, it? is it the, you know, Harvard moral philosophers? Is it going to be some kind of populist politician, either on the left or the right, who pushes things through? Is it going to be technologists? Is it going to be novelists? You know, will, will there be a, uh, a revival of, of literature having a say in society? I think not. <laughs> but, you know, got to remain hopeful. I mean... No, I, I, dis- I completely disagree with that. I mean, we, we, we may be in some sort of a low point um, for literature, uh, but I completely disagree with that because the human imagination is completely completely part and parcel of what we're talking about. It's, it's just maybe expressed differently, but technologists, everybody, we, we need we need to have that imagination muscle exercised. And what better way to do it than by, by, by literature? I mean, I guess there's other ways of doing it, of course, but literature gives you these paths into the future, into parallel lives, into the past, where you can make this walk to the future or to the parallel you know, universe or to par- you know, the past, it's a fictional walk. It's a it's it's a it's a hypothetical walk. But by doing that imaginative walk, you know, with the novelist hand in hand, you are uh, you are getting information. It may not be information that is true to the world, but it is still information that may be used to improve the world or to improve your life. Um, so there are potential sort of scenarios that we walk through as we read. Uh, and I think to to take that away and to give that into some sort of um, uh, an algorithm, to give into an algorithm of Netflix or something like that, where you watch what what the machine sort of what the data points on on your profile say you might want to watch, without any kind of ability to escape that loop, uh, is is particularly dangerous. And I think we can only see ourselves in that light. We can only see ourselves, step outside of ourselves through our imagination. 
we can't really do it in VR, even though it seems like we are. You know, this I don't know if you uh, know about this philosopher, uh, famous philosopher as far as nowadays goes. Anyway, David Chalmers, uh, philosopher of you know. Uh, I guess he, he said on NYU, he just came up with a new book called Reality Plus. I mean, how's that for a title? Reality mm. Plus, where he basically argues that you know, virtual reality is, is as real as any kind of other reality that we may want to experience. Um, so it's, it's, it's very, we're losing that sort of ground of any kind of transcendental and kind of metaphysical sort of grounding because there's, I guess it is kind of a metaphysical well, I, I, belief that I, I, <laughs> you know. I would agree. I would agree, and and I would I'd connect it to my experience. So for the last two years, I've been working remote, right, in a in a uh, in the mm. marketing field at two different technology companies, and for a while it was the novelty. I'm working from home. I'm remote. I'm however you wanted to characterize it, and there was novelty. It was different. I was comparing and contrasting. I was uh, appreciating all of these sort of things. So now two mm. years in, I'm at a second company. I am officially a remote person. I work for a company that's not even headquartered in Oregon. And what I have found, and it's a fascinating change, is that you know, tomorrow I'll go to work, you know, roughly nine to five. It, it has become such that my experience of, of talking to people through the screen I'm uh, uh, a so-called creative within marketing, so I collaborate with others to create projects, marketing projects. Um, I have to use the um, the tools to to share images, share copy, make corrections, all the things that I would often do in the old way at someone's desk. Right, I would do a quote unquote over the shoulder. But what has happened? is that there is no longer a question. So this is how work is done now. There is nothing, there seems to be nothing deficient or overly uh, better about this way of working now. It is simply work, just the way it was. There are certain mm -hmm. advantages that become clear when it's, I want to take a walk or even jog at lunch or whatever. I, I have more freedom, clearly. But when it comes to working, it is completely changed for me. Work is now, the company is now in my head, right? I, I, I contain all the characters, all the hallways, all the water coolers, all the bulletin boards. They're all in my head for better or for worse. And, and work feels just as satisfying, overwhelming, frustrating as it did in the old brick and mortar way. And so it's astonishing that this has happened. And I start to think of the effect it will have, both positive and negative, on someone who's 25. And this will be the only way, you know, that they will have ever have worked, which is, you know, 98% of their time from a home office and their entire collaboration, communication, uh, all of this will happen digitally, mm. will happen through various tools. It's a fundamental change. So, th so that's my sense of revolution uh, that's mm. happening right now from, from that perspective. And it's huge. And again, I appreciate, I'm fortunate, I can work from home. A lot of people have to go to a restaurant or a Target and work. I mean, I, I, but, it, I think the next step is, is, Rob, is for you to jump into a VR room. 
You're going to jump into a VR room next. You're going to go to your office in your house. You're going to put on some goggles and presto, you're going to be in the office. I think that's the next, uh, the next evolution of, of work. Uh, It's got to be virtual reality. I think that makes a lot of sense for for, for collaboration and stuff like that. Whether there is any kind of um, philosophical basis for calling virtual reality real uh, Mm. is, is a very interesting question. I think it's open for debate. Um, it's it's not just between you know the religious view and and the scientific view. I think it's a little bit more than that. You know, there's a. I I came across this interesting. Um, I, I was just thinking about what if AI, you know, as opposed to being the scary thing, of it'll take over human you know, all kinds of human jobs, will make us basically redundant. Uh, instead of that, what if we designed our technology again with humans at the center, or at least in some sort of a loop. Uh, and and also benevolent. If there's some sort of a benevolence going on on the AI's part, meaning that it's 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 it works for us, uh, not side by side with us, not just kind of in some sort of neutral, you know, value neutral way, but actually literally, not enslaved, which is also a problem, uh, because slaves tend to want to be free, uh, but some in some sort of fiduciary uh, duty to us. And then I was thinking, I was listening to some um, psychotherapist talking, and she mentioned something that really threw me. Uh, apparently already, as, as we speak, AI is better than any psycho, psychotherapist or any kind of system, psychotherapeutic system, at predicting suicide. Uh, yeah. Psychotherapists for years, for decades, have been trying to have some sort of a formula that they can sort of say, oh, shit, and you're Rob's exhibiting all the signs. We better call in the ambulance or something. AI is much better at that right now than any psychotherapist. Uh, wait, wait, let me just finish, Rob. And then I was thinking, <laughs> a flight of fancy here, I was thinking that if we do get some sort of um, super intelligent uh, AI breakthrough where it becomes clear that this is a person, that this a is a thinking person, again, very, I don't really know if that's possible, but let's just say it is. And what if that AI is, has got the fiduciary duty and because it's super intelligent, it's some sort of a quantum, whatever, you know, computer, uh, it can predict when humanity is about to commit suicide, which we, you know, we kind of think that we're kind of on the brink of that right now, right? We're thinking we have, we have all, we have all, you know, we have nuclear war still a problem, we have climate change, and we have tech disruption as as potential for ending our world uh, for human suicide. So if we have insight and foresight into building some sort of, uh, uh, a machine that will help us avoid a collective suicide. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that, isn't that exactly what we need to be working on right now? Because all problems, this is something I got from David Deutsch, and I love this. Uh, once you reject the metaphysical turn, once you reject the, you know, the sort of saying, well, there's something unknown and you know, transcendental, and you say only physical things exist, then anything that is not prohibited by the laws of physics is possible hmm. uh, anything? So we uh, we we have this knowledge. We we can explain this knowledge, and it helps us move along, you know, further. Like for instance, people in the in the during the Black Plague, they were dying because of lack of what knowledge. They didn't know about hygiene. They didn't know about you know masks and whatnot. Um, uh, and so they were dying because of lack of knowledge. So. 
a David Deutsch's point is that we could be facing existential threats. We are facing existential threats, and we better get on the ball as far as getting that knowledge under our belts because we could die from lack of knowledge. So I really yeah, find that really I, interesting. I, I mean, dude, you just you just laid out uh, some some really heavy stuff there about f- five different you know mm-hmm. fascinating mm-hmm. Uh, threads. Yeah, I I think in terms of if. If humanity starts to feel that, um, you know, in the case of, you know, predicting behavior, you know, almost 100% or, or at a high probability that we aren't, you know, quote unquote free, particularly in the West, right, which, which from our, you know, uh, you know, Greek, Judeo-Hebrew tradition, right, the, the freedom to choose God is, is you know, we, we have to believe that 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 we can, you know, that we, we always have sovereignty over ourselves to make a decision, right? I, mm-hmm. I, I can only imagine the, the moral, philosophical, and religious crisis that humanity would, would um, go through, right? If, if, mm-hmm. if it became absolutely clear that we were all, you know, however you want to define it, pre-programmed to our fate, right? You know, uh, uh, Certain certain uh, societies in in Asia may may uh, who have a different tradition, whether it's uh, you know Buddhist or Confucius, etc. Philosophically, may may be able to handle that better than folks in the West. I, I don't know, but my point is is that, um, and and I think this is a good way to start to you know land our conversation a bit is when I get frazzled and I start puzzling through some of this um, is I start, I think of something very simple like, um, you know, J.S. Bach's cello suites, Beethoven's late string quartets, um, you know, uh, Hamlet, um, even something, you know, less highbrow, uh, at least by 19th century standards or whatever, you know, a Puccini opera or something. that, That makes me feel the 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 uniqueness, the um, uh, surprising, unmatchable, you know, spunkiness of humanity, and and of individual humanity in particular, and mm. and that's that's why I feel that art and literature always have to be a part of living a a, a fully human life, right? Particularly in this Absolutely. age. Where mm-hmm. I mean, what I mean here, you and I are book people, and, and we've just spent an hour talking about machines and algorithms, right? It why be, because would be we'd be silly to ignore it, right? This is so much a part of our lives, but but I think that's what makes art so so much more precious in our current age. Because how do you explain? How do you explain? Um, the music of Bach. I, I, I mean, you can break it down. You, you can look at the sheet music. You can isolate the notes. You can see that, you know, decisions were made to, you know, Bach probably listened to, you know, this Renaissance. There's certainly some, a lot of mathematical uh, symmetry right. to his music. You can look at it that way, let's say. Yeah. But, but we have, you know, we have access to the entire library of world music. We have, you know, very sophisticated mathematicians. We have, we have AI as we've been talking about, but but you know, music 
that is eternal like that, you know, isn't pumped out every day, or even, you know, something more modern, a, a Thelonious Monk tune, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this is where, you know, for me, art is, is really, it's emerged as my, you know, it's my religion. I, I just don't know how you get through life without it, you know? And, well, and well, Rob, it's just, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it. yeah, and it's such a, I mean, it could be it, it could be things besides art because I think it's just creativity is maybe the the better more general term. Um, and I'll read you here something that I picked up from um, Jaron Lanier, who's the pioneer of of virtual reality technology. Um, you you might have seen his name here and there. He's he's a really interesting guy. He wrote the book about you know something about so many arguments for the elimination of social media is really kind of a, an interesting critic of technology from the inside. You know, he's definitely an insider. Um, but, uh, he's, he's, uh, in a, uh, I think it's called the dawn of the new everything. That's the name of the book. Um, and he, he's trying to, again, to, to frame, like, how do we drive, you know, the, the current model is, is, you know, how do we drive the most traffic in order to take up the most of your time and attention? That's the model, right? Yeah. Um, and he wants to see AI viewed as more of like a repackaging of human capital rather than an alien source of capital. So, so yeah, he, and his, this is the direct quote. Our fate rests on human traits that haven't been defined in scientific terms, such as common sense, kindness, rational thought, and creativity. While the AI fantasy is that we'll be able to automate wisdom any minute, can we all at least agree that these qualities can for now only be harnessed by our systems, that they can't be generated as yet by our system, right? So they can be harnessed but not generated. So the question for our age, he continues, can we, use, can we see ourselves through our seductive information systems in order to see ourselves and our world clearly? How bad do things have to get before tech culture decides it's worth challenging even our most cherished mythologies in order to dig ourselves out of our mess. And that's the closing uh, lines of uh, Jaron Lanier's Dawn of the New Everything, Encounters with Reality and Virtual Reality, which is a, you know, a very interesting book. So, uh, is that, as you is can that see, the t- title? Yeah. That, that's so interesting yes. because cause the yeah. late uh, uh, anthropologist David Graber, right? His new book is called The Dawn of Everything, right? This new anthropological look at... Um, I, wonder if, I wonder if Lanier is playing on that, The Dawn of the New yeah, it Everything. Yeah. It sounds like he is. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so you, you know, insiders are looking into this as well. I think, uh, I think there's, there's a sense in Silicon Valley that they have been uh, entrusted or have created or are part of, not sure, maybe all three, this enormous, relatively new power. Going back to George Dyson, this power is not going anywhere. It's going to be with us. It's going to evolve potentially into something uh, that we can't even imagine right now. Um, and and just to I, I I don't want to leave you know because we're almost at the hour here and we should probably uh, yep. wrap up. But I want to say that I read an interesting fiction book all along well while, while I was breaking my brain all these heavy issues uh, from FSG Farrar Strauss Giroux. Um, by a Norwegian novelist, I, I'm going to mispronounce her name, Gunhild Oyhag. Uh, 
uh, interesting, very interesting writer, present tense machine. Um, not, I wouldn't give this five stars or whatever. It's it's about four stars. <laughs> I, I still enjoyed it, uh, but it's um, it's an interesting way of of looking at how language. Well, not looking at it, but she uses the the power of language to literally split universes. So it's kind of a cool idea, um, splitting a universe through language. Um, and I also want to give a shout out to uh, Sasha Sokolov because I've uh, through our Elena Furman podcast uh, about Russian literature, I got contacted by a professor uh, who's doing a, um, a very interesting project about this writer, Sasha Sokolov, that I think I mentioned to you briefly. But it's a very difficult book. It's kind of sort of the Russian Finnegan's Wake. It's called Between Dog and Wolf. And there's going to be a new translation. I believe it's going to be a new translation and annotation website similar to what um, um, WilliamGaddis.org was or is, which, by the way, if any any Gaddis readers out there should really know about WilliamGaddis.org, it's a wonderful resource uh, for any of the uh, Gaddis's books, uh, lots of notes and stuff like that. So anyway, so so Sokolov, uh, I'd, I'd like to maybe at some point talk to you about that as well. And Jay Perini, Borges and me. Did you ever read that, Rob? Did you ever get around to that? No, I haven't, but but read a nice review in the London Review of Books. Yeah, yeah, man, it's a it's a good it's a good sort of uh, great look at at Borges um, outside of his books. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, and, and then One River by Wade Davis. I just want to mention that One River uh, Wade Davis is a uh, explorer in residence at National Geographic. So I really enjoyed One River. It's a long, long book. It's basically a biography of the. Harvard researcher uh, into psychoactive plants, um, uh, Richard Evans uh, Schultes. Um, if you want an adventure book in the Amazon, that's actually a real nonfiction, uh, like in the Indiana Jones type of adventure, this is it. One River, Wade Davis, uh, highly recommended. Nice. Yeah. And I, I would just leave with one recommendation. Um, I finished a slim book uh, by a Chilean novelist. Uh, Benjamin Labatut, and it's called When We Cease to Understand the World. Um, it's, a, mm. it's a new book published uh, in the fall of 2021, and I think very, very relevant. And, and what I love about it, it blends fiction and nonfiction. Um, it, it, it has that, that new feel, that new form. It also um, it explores the, the lives of these um, European uh, physicists who were you know, at the dawn of uh, uh, cracking the code for quantum mechanics. And um, I, I think we would finish this podcast with the sense that, you know, we don't know. We, we can ask a lot of questions. And so this book also, um, you know, really uh, helps you understand that, you know, um, the, the, the mystery of what we don't know is... Uh, yeah, what, what happens when we don't know? That helps yeah. you understand... Something we don't know. Know there's something that we don't know. It's an interesting, interesting juxtaposition for sure. Yes, much, much better. Said. But yeah, I hope to say more about this book when I gather my thoughts. But um, you know, Greg, get... our buddy Greg Gerke interviewed him. You should look up oh, his interview. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. He was at uh, forget exactly the bookstore interview or something like that. But he he spent some time oh, with uh, Benjamin Labatut for sure. And uh, the book has been getting a lot of attention for sure. It's it's very very well written. I enjoy parts of it. As I told you before offline, yeah. that uh, I have a problem with it because I already had a conception of the birth of quantum mechanics. This was one of my favorite topics when I was a teenager. 
I read so much about it. And so yeah. when this guy comes along and he enters the heads of these physicists that I revered so much, I at first was very excited because I wanted to, you know, read more about that kind of development of the physics. But then I quickly realized that there was a there was a lot of fiction in there, and 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 yeah. as much as I enjoyed that 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 frisson, you know, between the fiction and nonfiction, I I felt a little bit uh, not cheated, but I felt a little bit like 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 uh, uh, it was. Uh, disrespectful or something i don't know <laughs> maybe not a very rational response but i i felt emotionally um divorced from this book because as soon as i realized that obviously he couldn't have this 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 front row seat in the in the people's heads in order to see all these thoughts and and movements and 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 you know lightning like flashes of ideas uh, he just kind of wrote it out, which is wonderful because it's there's some truth to it because he's spacing it on actually what happened, yeah. but the the inner workings of the mentality, I just I refuse to accept that. But that's just me. Yeah, no, that's understood. <laughs> um, for for me, it's 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 showing a path forward because I I I have this gut instinct that literature will uh, the the fiction nonfiction divide will will start to get very very fuzzy and and. What do you mean start? Future, <laughs> well, or, or become, become such a thing Continue. where the, these discussions won't be, uh, they won't be had. Mm. People will just buy yeah, books yeah. and read them. Um, I, I agree. So I, so I want to I talk more about his work at some point, but we should go. Uh, we've had a great discussion. Um, we've got to do this more often. We've got to... Got to get our lazy butts in gear. Uh, we promise. Yeah, you know, because we have to that. have this discussion, Rob. We have to have it publicly. So, you know, the yeah. common good has to be reestablished uh, somehow without being moralizing, without pushing. And so I think that's, we'll have to continue this conversation for sure. Excellent. Well, uh, great talking again, Roman. Uh, remind folks that uh, if, if you do use Twitter, we are at Feel Bookish. Follow us there. We're also on Instagram. Uh, make sure to. Give your data to Facebook uh, in a timely manner. And uh, <laughs> we thank uh, Heston Hoffman for his production and also for joining us today. It's always great to hear his voice. That's it. Enjoy the Super Bowl, or by the time this is published, I hope you enjoy the Super Bowl. And we'll uh, hopefully we can share more ideas with you soon. Okay, bye everyone. Sounds-